Welcome to the GC On Demand podcast, a show about people, about process, about technology, about community. It's great conversations with great technologists about things that matter to you, that matter to all of us. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to visit gcondemand.io for all of the show notes. And with that, let's get started. All right, welcome everybody to the GC On Demand podcast. My name is Eric Wright. Uh, of course, you may or may not know me. I'm at Disco Posse on Twitter, uh, also Disco Posse in the Green Circle community. Uh, super fun to be, you know, back in the back in the microphone seat again. Uh, we had a bit of a hiatus. We talked in the last episode about mentoring. I was heading into Interop, and we had a really, really neat session that was going on around Ask the Experts. Uh, along with a lot of other very, very strong community and, and agnostic-focused uh, events that were going on. And I was lucky enough, while I was at Interop, to meet the, the gentleman who I'm talking to today. Uh, with that, I'd like to welcome uh, Joe Emerson, who I, I say, I love this tagline, Serial Technical Co-Founder. Uh, if you do a quick search, he's also a great author, contributor to many, many publications. Uh, but with that, Joe, uh, introduce yourself, uh, how folks can get a hold of you, and, and then we're going to get started. Great. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you so much. Uh, well, the best way to reach me is on Twitter, uh, in the, uh, the, the positive side of Twitter, uh, and uh, great uh, sharing of uh, startup management and technical advice. I am just at Joe Emerson, uh, J-O-E-E-M-I-S-O-N. I think we could do a whole podcast alone on that statement of like the good side of Twitter. That, that's, a, that's a beast in itself. But um, so I, I wanted to kind of start off with, you know, ask the experts. I, uh, I, I was working with the UBM team that runs Interop uh, and we put together this idea of like kind of speed mentoring and, and being able to do stuff. I'm looking at growing a greater program around this in general. I've done some stuff in the past and, and you jumped on board and you became one of our, our mentors for the event. So I just want to ask you, sort of, how did you how did you come to to do that? What what drew you to it, and and what do you think was valuable both for you and for folks that sat with you? Um, gosh, well, I mean, I, I I generally any any way that I can pay back um, the people who have been my mentors, uh, or uh, or or at least the people sort of trusted advisors that I have. Uh, in life, uh, any, any way to pay that forward, I, I am happy to oblige. Um, and I think that uh, there's such a, a lot of the ability to do this online um, and even in person uh, is is kind of weak and meaningless uh, and 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 has very poor value for both sides. But that that, that session was actually excellent. Um, uh, the people I spoke with. Um, had really uh, had tough problems um, uh, and they were interesting and, uh, and, and needed some level of expertise uh, with some reasoning behind it to kind of talk through uh, specific issues. And so, uh, I mean, I found it rewarding in that I was able to, um, again, I, I feel like, you know, there are many who came before me and helped me. So I'm very happy to do that forward. Um, and, and I certainly hope it was helpful uh, for the people with whom I spoke. Um, and, and I think to some extent it was uh, in that, you know, I'm able to answer questions and I'm also able to 
uh, answer them in a, in a framework to, to explain this is why I think this is the right answer, uh, which I think is always uh, critical if you're going to help somebody with anything. Yeah, and you really nailed it. And, and again, like, I can't thank you enough because, first of all, uh, whether you realize it or not, you helped me, you know, on that day. I learned a lot and, and just watching how you talk with folks, it's every experience I get to see, whether it's direct or indirect, is helpful. And that whole thing, like, you learn from somebody and you want to be able to pay that forward to somebody else. And I think that's a huge part of everything we do. You know, we, we talked, you know, we talked briefly before we started the mics up, you know, about empathy and, and things. And it's, there's a lot of different ways that we can, we can do that in our communities and, and being a mentor is, is super solid. Do you, I mean, I would guess you probably have a couple that you have in history, like in your life that you're like, that you knew did something special for you. Well, quick question. Do you have somebody that you didn't realize was mentoring you and it kind of hit you later on? Because that's, that's what I'm trying to explore. Is I call them accidental mentors. They're folks that give you some guidance, but just like, hey, they're just telling you a story. And then all of a sudden, six months later, you're like, ah, oh, I can use that thing. You know, that's really interesting. I actually don't think uh, that that would be true. And I actually think, I, I, don't, I don't love... I don't find the word mentor to be that applicable to what I would describe. I mean, I like this sort of, and maybe it's just semantic, but this sort of trusted advisor concept. If I think about the people who I am indebted to, who have given me guidance and advice over my career and my life, um, generally speaking, what's happened is I've gotten to know them in some context. Um, They've worked for me. I've worked for them. Um, I was taking a class from them, um, whatever, whatever those things were. And then what I found was they, 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 they added something to my uh, ability, uh, either just information, facts, experience, but, or like a way of th- thinking about things, a, a real talent for solving particular types of problems that I did not have. Um, and, and so it, it was always, it tends to be, I meet someone, I interact with them, and then I really respect them for certain aspects of, of what they do, how they think, and then I just keep going back to them. <laughs> um, and I just keep asking questions. And again, it, it, I find it's, it's so, it, it, they feel so randomly distributed to me. I mean, one of my favorite people to talk to, someone who's much younger than me, um, but who just naturally understands product uh, and how to build product and how to uh, a- a- what questions you ask customers uh, to sort of pull information out of them. Um, he's just he, it's it's like he was born with this ability, and so he has this wonderful ability that you could drop him in any situation, and he seems to have the right way to tackle it. So that's lovely. I, I'll give one other example. Um, I went to law school. Um, and, uh, and, and I, when I was in law school, there was a, it was really common, um, at least at that time, um, to, to sort of talk about how you were, uh, really dedicated to like finding the truth and, and finding, you know, using facts, um, and, 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 and finding sort of the ultimate right way, the correct way to look at something. Um, and I had a professor who sort of asked me kind of what my, legal philosophy was and I described that to him and he and he just he just looked at me and he said bullshit he said what do you stand for 
You need to stand for something. You can't stand for facts and empirical investigation. Bullshit. You get pushed around everywhere. No, like that's not a philosophy. That's, that's, that's just stand for something. And it was, it was, uh, that was such a huge moment in my life. That moment. Hey, let me give you one other one, actually. Um, uh, there was, uh, the, a good friend of my wife's, uh, is this woman named Emily Oster, who, uh, I think she wrote a great book called Expecting Better. Uh, she's an economist, um, at Brown. Um, and, uh, and, but this was before, uh, like this is when we were all in our early twenties. Remember we, we were eating at a restaurant, um, and, uh, and I was asking Emily a bunch of questions about her, uh, her research. Uh, and then I think she was getting annoyed that I was asking her all these questions about her research. Um, and she, uh, and, and she looked at me and she's, she's like, why do you, why are you just asking me all these questions about this? Like, why can't we talk about like what we're doing in our lives and, you know, our families, what we're planning on doing. Um, and, uh, and I was like, oh, but I have such passionate fulfillment for what I do. And she just, she looked at me and she said, most people can and should be getting their fulfillment from their families. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, and, and it was, it was, that was also just an incredibly formative moment actually. Uh, where I sort of realized like, yeah, you know, like, like this is, this is something that I, I is, I'm sort of falling into this like workaholism trap, like immediately. And like, that's all I want to talk to anybody about is like what they do. Um, but not like who they are and the, and the families that they have and like the fulfillment that they're, they're, they're getting through their lives. That was also that sort of, I mean, we talk about work, work life balance. Right. But I mean, part of it is like, you know, that primary sense of, you know, where should you be getting fulfilled? What, you know, what are the expectations you should have for these other aspects of your life? So anyway, like that's, I view mentorship more that way. So there were surprises. That was a complete surprise. Like a bit, and that that was such a huge, has been such a big part of, you know, like one of those moments in my life where I've been like, wow, that was really important. Um, um, but, uh, and so maybe, but, but I knew it immediately. Like it had an immediate impact. It wasn't like I went back later and I was like, Oh, that was really important. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it's interesting. I love that. What you're saying is, you know, we see those moments and we get questioned and we take it away and, you know, kind of to what your, your, your law professor said, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's not about facts. <laughs> it's like even, even honing in, you know, uh, it's a lot of learning and, and you would find that, you know, if you can impart that learning on someone else and it's like saved you a click. That's what, that's what my life is. I'm like, I will do the, I'll do the hard <laughs> right. You won't yeah. have to. Uh, so it's, we're trying to do that. And you know what, I think what's important about that moment and those moments is not what it did to up to that point. Like it helped to disrupt you right in a way you sort of disrupt yeah. your way of thinking so how do we how do we do that better you know as as people we have sometimes trouble disrupting ourselves and what do you find are good ways joe in in getting people to kind of unlock that that's yeah this is a great question and and i you know my thinking on this has changed over time um so i used to have this sense and, and the way that I and uh, my co-founder in BuildFacts, the uh, company I started uh, about 10 years ago, the way we used to talk about it was like, is this person self-aware? So we always went back to like, do you have the capability, right? And we would describe the capability as self-awareness. Um, and, and I think we, 
uh, certainly my concept of it was that it existed on a scale or a spectrum um, that you could be sort of like a little self-aware or self-aware about certain things and not. Um, I've, I'm, I'm past that, actually. I think that's, that's wrong. Um, I think that, um, and uh, I, Keith Raboy, who's a, uh, who's a venture capitalist, um, uh, and I don't I necessarily agree with uh, his, uh, everything he says or his tone. I think his tone is sort of, he's like a, he sort of likes to deliver truth as a taskmaster. Task Master, I think the things he says though are basically correct. Um, yeah, but the way in which about, it's delivered doesn't always yeah. doesn't always achieve the desired result, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, it might for him. It might for him. Um, but uh, but yeah. I mean, I think general. I think if you peel back to the detail, I think he's he basically is right as an operator. Like he gets it and he understands it well. And I actually think he's he's probably a pretty great person to work for, um, despite you know, the, the, again, the tonal pieces of it, just if you dig into it. But he talks about people being open-minded or closed-minded, and that's it. Like, it's black and white. Uh, and I am, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm basically there. Um, I, I think you're either open-minded or you're closed-minded. Uh, and I think if you're open-minded, you can disrupt yourself. And if you're closed-minded, you won't. Uh, and that's it. Uh, and, 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 and I've worked with enough people um, over the past, goodness, 20 plus years. Um, uh, to be able to go back and classify everyone in a binary way. I mean, that was really the big moment for me was going back and saying, wow, I really can say like these people were open-minded and these people were closed-minded and just period. And the closed-minded people just wouldn't let anything in. Uh, and Keith had a couple good, has a couple good like heuristics for this. Um, I think that like some of the ones that are, that I think are really interesting, uh, let's say this one's from him. He says like, if you talk to people a lot and they, they use the phrase, well, I could be wrong, but like they're closed-minded. Like that That's is a, a closed-minded indicator, view, right? <laughs> right. And 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 what's interesting is, uh, like the way I think about that is, um, that is very me-centric, right? That's very like let me like like that sentiment is like I'm in my head, right? And you could say I'm wrong, but I'm going to stay in my head and I'm going to tell you what's in my head. That, that, that's what that is, right? So it's like, I mean, literally, if we go to the definition or the actual words, closed-minded, right? Like, I'm in my head and I'm not leaving my head, right? Um, I yeah, think it's something not about, that... Closed, like not accepting any new inputs, but it's a closed loop system more that like I, I'm yeah. validating yep. my own opinions. <laughs> Exactly. Or, or, and, 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 and everything I'm not, I'm, I'm uncomfortable leaving my, my brain, right. I'm uncomfortable taking a walk outside of my brain. And so one of the things like my co-founder right now, um, uh, one of the things that he says a lot, and I can imagine that some people find this very challenging, but you know, I'll be, he'll sort of lay something out and I'll say, well, actually, I don't know if that's the right thing to do. Maybe we should do this. Right. What he'll say is, he'll say, well, why would we do that? Like, walk me down that path. Like, like tell me, like, why would we do that? What, what outcome would we get from doing it your way? What would be the better outcome your way than my way? And on one level, I know lots of people who I've worked with, certainly, who would find that, like, very challenging, right? And, and they, their immediate feeling to getting asked that question would be, this person's closed-minded because they're not they're challenging me. 
But actually, this is the opposite of being closed-minded. This is being open-minded. This is saying, I will walk with you on your journey in your mind. You just have to explain yourself better, right? It's actually rational discourse, which is something that people have difficulty when they get questioned. <laughs> you feel it's because you're yeah. questioning yeah. their abilities. What you're doing is you're, you're questioning yourself through their statement. It, and there's that's like you said, that's the difference between that's right. yeah. closed-minded, but in fact, it's... I, I don't know. Let's, let's work through that and help me along the way with it. That's <laughs> what I hear. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me see, you know, I, I mean, literally the definition of open-minded to some extent, right? Let me, I mean, again, I view it as like, let, invite me to your mind and explain to me what, what I'm supposed to be seeing. Cause I'm not in your head, you know, take me on that whole tr trip. And, and so when I think about this concept of disrupting yourself, to me, it's entirely this question of, um, you know, uh, are you open-minded? Um, are you out there sort of seeking advice? And uh, like, here, here's, a, here's like a very specific real-world example in which I find um, myself to be much different from other CTOs who I have worked with. And so I, I spent some time working for was essentially a private equity firm um, and working within their portfolio companies. And I would say this is not all the time, but there were certainly many cases um, where I would go in, I would say, hey, you know, I've got this knowledge of these expertise, this expertise. Um, you know, uh, uh, I'm happy to go over any plans you should have been brought in because someone wanted to spend a lot of money on something, you know, and I would say, you know, why don't you like, why don't we just talk through your plans and what you're planning on doing? Um, and, uh, and, and, and we'll talk through it. And, and, you know, the, the general feedback to this was how could this person give me like as little information as possible to get me to go away? Right. That was like, that's the default response. Right. And so it ends up being a very antagonistic relationship, but, but I mean, my view, like what I'm doing, like, so right now I've, you know, I have an application architecture, um, for my new business, um, and uh, but I, and I'm using relatively new technology, uh, like a, a service from Amazon that just uh, went GA called AppSync. Um, and uh, you know, I don't know everything. I've built a lot of applications. I've been in software development for almost 25 years now. But uh, you know, I, I I still have very isolated knowledge. Um, and so I have called up a bunch of different people uh, who I respect, who I know. Uh, who have done things similar to this or who I think are really smart or like really smart on the engineering side, really hard on the hiring side, they're really smart on the hiring side, really smart on the QA uh, uh, side. And I've just said, hey, uh, can I just show you what I've done here? Can I onboard you as a developer? Uh, and just tell me, A, like ask me lots of questions. Um, tell me everything you think of that could be wrong about this. And then B, like design an alternate version of this, like very roughly. Like, you know, I'm not asking someone to spend an enormous amount of time, but, you know, tell me a different way you might do this and then give me a little compare contrast, like on what you think might be better. And you're not going to hurt my feelings. And the best thing you could do is help me not, you know, if this is bad, I need to know now. And I need to know why now. Um, yeah, it's that and, valid and, continuous yeah. validation throughout it rather than like, let's just bake this to the end. And then I'll have been so hard and fast on how I did it that you won't accept opinion about whether there was a different way to go right <laughs> right right exactly and it also means that like i mean it's also another way i've heard this described is you want to put your self-identity 
in being a person who is looking for the right and the best answer. And then what you're doing is at any given point, you're doing the best job you can to find the best answer. That's the right identity to have. And the, the identity that's based around, I am an expert in designing X, or I am perfect at, at Y, is, is an identity that's going to mean you're never going to learn. You're never going to, you know, you're certainly never going to be able to disrupt yourself. Um, and so, you know, I want to be able to go back always with, with these, with like an application architecture. And if we find out that there was a really terrible decision in it, you know, I want to be able to go back and go, okay, well, you know, that was bad. Like we put that bad thing in there. But, you know, if I look at the process that I followed, uh, it was pretty good. You know, I had a lot of different people look at it and they, they didn't find it either. So, you know, I think it's probably a hard to find flaw. In my house. Go fix it. Well, and uh, it's funny too, because if we, whatever we do, we also have to look at the context of things and always applying context to it is important. Because otherwise, if I look back and say, you know, it was built in X versus Y, you're like, that's a terrible idea. Well, no, it wasn't because you see that was like the predominant language. There was a lot of development folks available. You know, like my favorite thing that I, I I know I'll get yelled at for tearing down eventually, you know, people, when they lead with your product description, it says written in go, like, that's awesome. Love love (laughs) what you said there, but what are you actually saying? And if you give me the reasons why you did it, that's more important than the method by which you chose. Right. Yeah. So I, I always, yeah, no, exactly. I always talk to my, you know, the, every new startup, like I said, if it's written in Go, why did you do that? That's the answer I really want right. to hear, not what you wrote it in. Exactly. And when you talk no, about exactly this, right. I think this is cool because like we could, I could do another hour on the question I'm going to ask you right now. <laughs> if you take all these things, then what it's really led to is, you know, continuous learning, questioning ourselves, being open-minded and then disrupting ourselves. But disrupting ourselves as well as an industry, I think this is what's really, really cool. And we see these continuous waves. And uh, you did a great article, uh, I'll say recently, God, I can't remember when it was, it wasn't too long ago. Uh, and you talked about, or sorry, it was, it was actually the thing was in your Twitter timeline. You tagged this thing of how the next wave of disruption is gonna come from a different generation of like 30s and 40s folks that are, in incumbent management positions who now know how to disrupt their existing industry. And I love that because everybody sort of says like, well, you can't be disruptive unless you're, you're 21 and, and, and you are fresh <laughs> and ready to challenge it. So what was the background of that show? And, and, and tell us all about that. I love that idea. Sure. I mean, so, so, I mean, the, you know, what the company that I've just started uh, with a great co-founder um, uh, is in insurance. Um, and he, you know, my, I, 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 I started a company that sells, that sells a lot of data to, uh, insurance companies. Um, my co-founders sort of grew up in, uh, in insurance for like, you know, nearly 20 years. Um, and like, you know, probably the most talented executive, uh, in insurance today, at least of, you know, his generation and beyond, I think. Um, and, um, and, and, and what's interesting about a, a, an industry like insurance is there have been a lot of attempts to uh, disrupt insurance. Um, it's, it's an inefficient uh, industry. Um, and, uh, and, but, but what's actually happened is the, the typical Silicon Valley formula of let's find talented technical entrepreneurs and talented startup entrepreneurs who don't know anything about insurance 
and let's give them a lot of money and let them go disrupt. Um, and that has worked well for quite a few industries. So, uh, you know, I mean, Airbnb, a great example, right? I mean, we could, we could sort of, we could make this long list, Uber. Um, but, you know, those industries, um, and I think in hindsight, I mean, it's difficult to look at these things in hindsight. Warby Parker, another good example of direct-to-consumer disruption. So it's, it's difficult and we should, there's like a warning to say looking at these things in hindsight is, is always, you know, somewhat concerning. Are you, are, are, you know, are you actually correct? But at least my hypothesis here is that there's some industries that are relatively simple to learn quickly. Uh, there aren't uh, just a whole ton of nuance. There are, I mean, I'm sure there are key things you have to learn and understand. So I'm not saying they're trivial, but you can take an outsider in and in the course of that outsider building a business, given, you know, a number of years and reasonable funding, uh, can sort of figure out the key parts of, of, the, of, the, in, of the industry that, that are necessary to go disruptive. But also my, my hypothesis is that's not every industry. There are enough industries that have enough elements to them, enough, I don't know if you want to call it nuance or you just want to call it kind of inches. There are all these little inches everywhere. Um, and and it, the amount of time it takes to learn them all from an industry perspective, let's say from start to finish, isn't a couple years, but is 15 years, is 20 years. Um, because there's, there's just more complexity, and it's especially true when you get to these sort of heavily regulated and disparately regulated industries like an insurance. Yeah, you um, need to be well, able to know also that. True. If you don't know that business, how can you disrupt it? And the depth of knowledge required will range from business to business, like you said, especially when they're highly regulated. Right. Now, some may say, well, Uber, you know, flouted regulations. Well, that was sort of a different story, and uh, well, I, I look at a lot of founders. It's, it's, Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying, no, I mean, it's a great point, right? I don't, I don't think like a regulated industry by itself is necessarily hard, right? Um, but I do think that there are, um, you know, there are, there, are, there are industries that are complicated or there are industries that have um, like quite difficult moats um, uh, that, that require... Uh, like key understandings of the participants in in in, in the environment in the industry, right? In order to uh, in order to actually get something deployed that works, uh, that's a sustainable business that is actually better, right? So in insurance, if we said broadly, um, you know, there's an insurance product that you have, which is you know, there's a rate plan, and you pay, you know, this is how much you pay to protect you know, to, to get this sort of coverage for, for these assets you have, um, or people. Um, and then, and then there's also, you know, what do consumers want? <laughs> um, you know, we talk about customer empathy and, and product. Um, you know, what is it that people really want, uh, when they're buying insurance? How do they respond to it? Well, you know, how do they feel throughout the life cycle of it? And, um, and then there's the regulatory environment. So there are those things. And then, you know, the article that, that I was tweeting about there was this, uh, this former uh, Ticketmaster CEO um, who is uh, leading a competitor uh, to Ticketmaster. Uh, the Wall Street Journal article on it is fantastic. I'm mean, highly recommend it. And I think what's really interesting about it is you can see in the plans and in how the product is described uh, you know, how much the expertise and understanding of 
first, what do customers who buy tickets want? And then also, um, what do the, the, the performers and the venues need and want out of tickets? What are their pain points and problems? Um, and I think if you, you know, you could come to this externally, uh, like I, I mean, I obviously buy tickets for things, right? So I, I have a sense of what I don't like about it. But when I compared, you know, sort of my sense of what I didn't like about it to the description of the article of what the, what the product is and what the angle of disruption is, um, I mean, I was, I was, I was completely blown away at like, wow, this is a, this is a, such a great, such a well-conceived strategy, business strategy and product strategy to tackle this and to disrupt Ticketmaster. Um, and I do not believe that anybody other than a really talented, you know, sort of young executive who really understood the ins and outs of the Ticketmaster business, you know, i.e. the past, you know, CEO of Ticketmaster would have been in a position to really nail this strategy. And, and if you can't nail it at the beginning closely enough, the, the standard strategy of like survive long enough to understand the industry just doesn't work in some of these industries where there's a lot of complexity and a lot of things you need to understand. And honestly, a lot of ways you can screw up uh, pretty badly. Uh, and there's just one anecdote on this. Um, 42 Floors is a startup in the commercial real estate space um, that um, ha I think, you know, was on a pretty good role and was establishing itself pretty well, but then decided to, and it was providing uh, uh, information and services to real estate, commercial real estate brokers. I just think it was growing as fast as, as the, the, as, as its um, board and its, its, its investors wanted. Commercial real estate is a very slow industry. And so in order to try to juice that, uh, the founders decided that they would become brokers, which immediately meant all of the people who had gotten them to the place where they were um, and their customers, they were not competing with. Oh um, and that, you know, that, <laughs> was a, that created an enormous problem for them um, that, they really, that they had not recovered from and I don't think ever will. Really now, I mean, you know, maybe they needed to do that because they were VC backed and they weren't growing fast enough, and then they just weren't ever going to satisfy them. But I actually think forty two fours, if it had been more content to be on a slower path, um, you know, today would be much more disruptive in the commercial real estate space than if than that move that just shot themselves in the foot. And I think if they had understood more about the industry, I don't think they would have done that. Right? I think they would have realized that that was like they just. Again, and let me distill it in one other way. If you understand enough about the industry as a, as a star rising executive within the industry, then you should be able to understand two things. The key aspects of the industry that you cannot change. Okay, one, right? These are intractable. And like, we can't do anything about them. But then two, these are the things that the industry does really badly and are really ripe to disrupt. And, and it's that knowledge and that understanding that gives you that, that business strategy that is going to be, and, and I described it in terms of inches. I mean, it really is. It's not like, um, to some extent, like an Uber or an Airbnb is almost like a one, you know, one angle shot, right? It's like, we're going to do this. I mean, we're going to, you know, I mean, I guess Uber did a couple of things, right? Because they did the black cars and then they did UberX after Lyft was doing that. Um, 
but you know, they're not that complicated. They're fairly easy to describe like what the high level strategy is. I think there are a lot of industries where if you're going to disrupt the incumbent, there is, there are much more, there's much more detail in the strategy and what you have to get done and and enough restrict, uh, sort of restrictions on how you will be successful. Things that people who really understand the industry can avoid. Um, uh, that you need to have and, and, and skills you need to have. And so that's why I think that, you know, we, we, there are a lot of industries that the Silicon Valley has just failed to disrupt in any significant way. I think it's because they've done it on the back of smart people, technical skills, make them learn the industry. And I think there is this wave that will, that will come of additional disruption that comes pairing essentially people who deeply understand the industry, but also deeply understand how it can be disrupted and leveraging that knowledge. Um, and I think, you know, whichever venture fund really nails this and like figures out a way, because, uh, sorry, there's one other thought on this, which is most fast rising executives in big industries are paid so well that they're not going to go do this, right? I mean, the, the, the executives that I'm talking about are executives who make probably more than a million dollars a year. Um, uh, with great long-term incentive plans, um, you know, that are like all tying to lock them in. And by the way, they're probably spending a lot of that. <laughs> they're probably own a couple right. homes and go on nice, nice vacations. Um, and so for those people to go take a pay, like, you know, take a 80%, 90%, you know, 95% pay cut, um, you know, usually they, they haven't had a windfall. And, and nor the sort of appetite for risk that in personal risk, uh, you know, they've got families, lives, kids, et cetera. It's hard. It's hard to go do that. And so I think, you know, there, someone's going to figure out how to sort of find and equip these people. And they're going to be lots of big, I mean, there, there's a lot of money at stake here to be able to finally disrupt some of these industries like insurance. I think we've got a new startup we can develop right now. It's called Startup Founder Search. <laughs> yeah, but we got to look for these folks. <laughs> like those personalities are there, but it's it's interesting that people just think like, oh, you know, you just if just because somebody makes a, a large amount of money per year, like they can just walk away from it. And it's kind of that sort of lottery mentality, like, oh, you win a million dollars, you're set, you live off the interest. I'm like, I'm not sure if you know. Yeah, nobody does. And a session. Very good. <laughs> well, there's that one of one. There was this great article in the New York Times. Um, uh, uh, it was probably ten years ago, but it was uh, how to how to like it's something like how how we live paycheck to paycheck on half a million dollars a year. Um, <laughs> and I highly recommend it because I think it's a really good example of of the way that you know basically, unless you have enormous financial discipline, which I think many millennials are showing that they do have actually, but. Um, but certainly, if you go older than millennials, I mean, I think you, you'll see that the, the financial discipline to not spend most of what you make um, is, is not there. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, lifestyle is in parity with income. And, and it's very hard yep, to exactly. two things. So it's, it's extremely. Yep. Yeah. I think of like the the successful startups that I've seen. One of the what I what you tend to unpack from a lot of them. I I was I was happy to talk with the folks from HashiCorp. So Mitchell Hashimoto and and Armand uh, Dadgar who started that that organization. And I said like why did you why did you start this company? And they said well, we didn't start a company. I was just solving a problem 
that I had and it really bothered me and I kept asking people how to fix it and they didn't know either. So that told me that maybe I'm starting a problem <laughs> that more than one person has and effectively they solved their own problem yeah. that they knew was a scalable issue. And like you said, if you, if you try and solve a problem like a technology view on an insurance thing, you aren't actually getting to insurance quotes faster doesn't solve the back office problems that you need to cure in order to actually make it scalable. You know, how do you get with the old quote of hockey stick growth? Like how do you actually make this so that it's viral, whatever you want to call it. If you, and the only people or typically the only people, like you said, are folks that are inside and closer to it in those deeper muddy sort of processes will we'll get that and as important as anything is know the intractable boundaries because otherwise you'll spend a lot of time trying to solve an unsolvable problem and you'll come up with a you'll spend eight years developing a beautiful heuristic only to find out that it's one goes in and one comes out that's not much of an algorithm well, right? <laughs> yeah i mean i think I, I mean i think if you look at the beginning of insurance which was now like you know basically 20 years ago was a bunch of uh, internet entrepreneurs uh, in, in 99 who said, wow, people are going to want to buy internet insurance online. Let's go sell auto insurance online. And, but what they did was they copied, uh, I think, all states auto insurance programs. Um, but they didn't, uh, because it, it wasn't public and it's not public, they didn't copy all states eligibility guidelines. Um, and so what happened was, they started selling a product that was meant for kind of Main Street standard USA uh, to non-standard auto, which is like people who like get in an accident and they're like, hey, can I get insurance right now? <laughs> um, and, and those original founders uh, basically went bankrupt. I mean, certainly, uh, and, and they had to get bailed out. Uh, and they, they ended up not really profiting off the success of insurance. Uh, so the people who built it really lost all of their essentially all of their equity um, because they missed out on this thing that anybody, any talented insurance executive would say, wait, 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 if you're going to copy a program, you need to know its eligibility guidelines because you need to make sure that you're not writing a program for people that the program wasn't designed for because um, that will make you lose your shorts. Um, and they're all like, this keeps repeating itself everywhere, even today in the insurance startup class, <laughs> these same type of problems. And, you know, again, just it, it wraps back to a lot of the stuff that you talked about, you know, with why we look for folks that have, have done, have walked the walk before us or walked a similar path. And, and, it, and it's really good. So I think it, it definitely brings home the importance of looking for folks, finding the, that guidance. And then when you have a chance to take the things you've learned and, and share them back, uh, definitely, yeah, we, we're, we're, we're at the end of time unfortunately joe i could literally go for seven more hours and just record podcast after podcast with you there's a lot of <laughs> i'll pull you in for a couple more down the road this is really really great i want to thank you first again for contributing to the ask the experts program at interrupt for all that you do for the broader community and and in a lot of ways uh and definitely you know i'm excited to keep watching you know your successes that you're getting uh, how do folks get a hold of you again? Let's just recap, and uh, and then hopefully we'll we'll get you back on again in future. Great, uh, just at Joe Emerson uh, on Twitter, uh, J O E E M I S O N. Awesome, thank you very much, Joe. This has been great, and then uh, looking forward to catching up again soon. Sounds great. Thank you very much. If you like what you heard here and want to hear much more, don't forget to subscribe to the GC On Demand podcast. 
You can go to gcondemand.io where you'll find the links in order to catch us in iTunes, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and more. So go to gcondemand.io. Don't forget to rate us in your podcaster of choice and look for much, much more. Have a show idea? Tweet us at GC On Demand. Thanks for listening.